Welcome to episode 68 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. How's it going? It's going. Man, you should be here, but you're not here. I know. The weather has delayed our arrival, unfortunately, for the grand Christmas celebration, but we're coming. Good, good. It's tomorrow. We're looking forward to seeing you. Can't stop, won't stop. And then we'll get some great in-person podcasting. Yes. Yes. Well, let's jump right in. Jesse, what are you affirming this week? So this week, I'm affirming an application, which I think that you use as well, and it's called Feedly. Do you use that? I do. So everybody should use this. It's basically an RSS feed, uh, hence the name, but F-E-E-D-L-Y. But here's the reason why I love it, because it goes across platforms. So I have an iOS, an Android, has a great web interface, but basically you can subscribe to all these different feeds, whatever you like. You can organize them and put them in different folders. And I just love it. I realized this year I've done so much reading through Feedly. It's super convenient. You get what you want. And it's a great omnibus for all information. So I can't recommend it highly enough, actually. I just love reading and I love using that. That's awesome. Yeah. What? How about you? What are you affirming? I'm going to throw an audible and change my affirmation and riff off of your affirmation. Oh, here we go. So Bring it. I am going to affirm Pocket. Have you ever heard of Pocket? No, please share. Okay, so Pocket is a sort of a storage uh, reading application. So you can save a web page or an article or a YouTube video, something that you want to consume later. And um, it will keep it. You can archive it. You can put tags on it, whatever. You can delete it. And as you save stuff to Pocket, it actually serves as a content discovery engine too. So it's looking at the content that you've saved and favorited the tags that you've got, and it actually starts to suggest other things. And here's the coolest part. If you look at it on your iPad, I don't think it has this on the on the Android version, but on my iPad, some articles, if they are like high enough rated or if they have enough activity, it'll tell me how long it thinks I should take to read it. So like if you're looking for a 10-minute article, it has like the number of minutes they think it'll take you to read it. I love and that. And then it also has text-to-speech built in. So if you don't want to read it, you can just hit play and it'll read. I mean, it's computer voice, but it'll read the article to you. So the way I use it is I have Feedly and then there's a button that sends it to Pocket. So I go through Feedly in the morning and I send all the stuff that I want to read to Pocket because I subscribe to like a thousand things on Feedly. So I send all the stuff to Pocket and then like when I'm waiting for the bus or at lunch or whatever, I just open up Pocket and it's got all the stuff there that I already have marked that I want to read. And then if I finish it, then it's got suggestions too. It's pretty sweet. That's pretty slick. I love yeah. it when blogs or articles tell me how long they think it's going to take me to read that. Yeah. I kind of dig that because it's yeah. just it's just helpful, right? Yeah. I mean, I think Pocket is probably just basing it on like the number of words and the average reading speed. It's not like it's tracking your reading speed. Still, um, it's awesome. It is really cool. And I use it. I do a lot of content curation for other social media stuff that I do. And so for Feedly, what's really cool is it has, I don't know if you've seen it, it's got the little like flame mark next to that. That's telling you like the engagement, how many people have shared it, how many people have clicked on and all that stuff. So it helps me when I'm going through to go, oh, here's an article. Doesn't look like it's been that popular, which sometimes that means I'm going to share this because nobody else is seeing it. And sometimes it's, well, this one is really blown up. So I'm going to share this because everybody is sharing it and I want to get in on that. 
There you go. That's like the definitive reading recommendation for the new year. If you want to get mm-hmm. after some good reading and a place to store it all, you got to go with Feedly and Pocket. Plus, here's what people should do. They should go on to Feedly and then they should subscribe to your blog, right? They should. I don't write as much as I want to. Shameless plug. It is. It's reformedarsenal.com. Um, I actually cross-post all of the, or I'm going to be cross-posting all of the episodes, the Reformed Brotherhood episodes there. But I do try to blog kind of as often as I can. But, you know, life is really busy, so I don't get as much um, on there as I like to. Although, Tulian Chavidian uh, preached a couple weeks ago, and so I've got an article that i got to write because people are letting him back in the pulpit and I'm not going to stop talking about it until he stops getting put in the pulpit. So Yeah, plus I think at this point you're legally obligated to write something about that, right? I might be. You know, it's weird. <laughs> I, I wish that it wasn't uh, this way. I wish it didn't have to be this way. But I'm actually kind of like sort of considered an expert on the situation, which is a weird phenomenon. So occasionally I'll get like a random phone call from a newspaper or I'll get a random phone call from someone in the area who's like, hey, I saw this guy at this church and I know there's something going on with it. And I, I searched his name and your name came up online. Um, so yeah, it's it's interesting. So there you go. Hook that up in yep. Feedly. You won't be disappointed. <laughs> you you might be disappointed. You're probably going to be disappointed at times. I'm not that great of a blogger. I'm I'm a little bit better of a podcaster. I hope. No, it's 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 it is honestly all joking aside. It is good stuff. So people should definitely check that out. Um, but speaking of underwhelming things, I do have a denial, which is kind of more like me just whining. But I discovered recently that for whatever reason, the gospel station on Sirius Radio is just downright awful. <laughs> like what happened to really good theologically sound gospel music I, now it's just like kind of r&b hip-hop with that's like really super ambiguous so yeah this week i'm denying and there's only one station on on serious <laughs> you know like satellite radio yeah but i'm just denying the the gospel station we we don't have we don't have a subscription to serious radio but what happens is one of our cars is in my wife's name and so that car recently had a bunch of things that were recalled on it. Actually, I think what happened is they sent me an email or us an email that was like, your engine might have a serious problem. And I was like, oh, that actually sounds like something I should pay attention to. And so we went when we went into schedule to have that looked at, it turns out there was like six yeah. things. That There's a bunch of recalls. <laughs> I'd never taken care of. Yeah. And so when, when you take it to the dealership, this triggers some kind of like awareness on behalf of satellite radio that you had some work done. So they'll send you like this free subscription yeah. and that's what we have again. And uh, I'm telling you <laughs> the gospel radio is just because I like gospel music. Who doesn't like yeah. some real God? Like it's in the title. It should be awesome. Yeah. You know who doesn't like gospel music? Not awesome. Who? Uh, Covenanters. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you've got some good gospel style psalm singing going on or something like that. Uh, well, that's not a kind, fan. Of, kind of more where I'd like it to be. I thought that was going to be a joke that you were setting me up for. <laughs> well, maybe it is a little bit of a joke. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know if we have any Covenanters who listen, but it seems like since day one of our podcast, we've been trying to drive them away. So if we still have any left, then they're like the most loyal listeners on the planet. Yeah, that's what's up. That's for sure. Yeah. So... I'm denying that station. Again, just one station. I think it's called Gospel. But it's <laughs> it's not it is not the gospel. That no. is definitely false advertising. Also, I think there's only like maybe two Christian stations and they're all kind of cheesy. But yeah. you know, of course there's like there's like six techno stations. Like there's like a Romanian 
ecstasy clubbing station just by itself. (laughs) (laughs) But one gospel, one Christian. This is something about society. Anyway, I could talk for hours. I I don't have a denial, but I'll tell you a quick story. So when I was in college, um, I worked at the store at Best Buy. And I had a supervisor who was just like really, really into techno. Like he loved techno. And every day it was like a different DJ and stuff like that. And I I said, you know, Chad, I don't understand why you love this music so much because it all sounds exactly the same. And he's like, no, 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 you can really tell the difference. (laughs) And I took took two CD players. We went out to the floor in the, the audiovisual section. I took two CD players and he had, it was still CDs. And I lined up the tracks and I hit play on both of them. And they were like synchronized. It was like the exact same beats, the way that this, the music like rose and fall. Like, you know, there's always right. that section where it like breaks down and like a couple of the tracks drop out and then they come back in. But it was like the exact same thing. And he looked at me, he's like, yeah, maybe they're, maybe they're a little similar. <laughs> so basically you're telling me in the middle of a Best Buy in Minnesota, you just went DJ Arsenal on that and mixed it yeah. all up. But I didn't even have to mix it. I just had to push play. Well, that's all. I mean, I don't want to be pejorative towards G- DJs, but like, I agree with you. A lot of that techno, I don't really understand because it's just it's just yeah. that house beat, like that driving house beat, some synthesized yeah. various stuff. Yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah, it's all it's the just, same thing. Yeah, we've totally lost everybody at this point. That's fine. I don't but, think we have. I think we probably have as many uh, hardcore techno fans as we do Covenanters in our audience. Yeah, where's like the Christian techno at? Where's gospel techno? Where's the good news of Jesus in techno? Did you just invent a new genre? (laughs) All right. Here's a challenge for somebody out there who's got some uh, garage band skills. I would like a gospel style techno song with uh, Psalm 119 as the lyrics. So if you can make that happen, then we will, I'm not going to promise it, but we will strongly consider making that the new intro to our show. Like, why can't we have that? Why can't we have some good electronica that has strong biblical fidelity? I would be down with that. Yeah, I'm not sure what that would even look like. I'm, I'm not sure either, but I'm willing to entertain it. That's true. John MacArthur would probably hate it, though. <laughs> so. if, you can, if you can actually write some electronica and mix in John MacArthur's voice, something from his sermons, that would be even better. I'm sure we could make that happen. I'm sure he would sound amazing auto-tuned. <laughs> Well, well, just like he'll sound like T-Pain. <laughs> It'll be awesome. Johnny Mac in the house. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. All right. So, what are we talking about tonight? Yeah. I was just going to say, why don't we transition this? Because it's just, this already has exceeded my expectations for what we would talk <laughs> about today. So I'm, I'm one, pretty pleased. One sixth of our episode is us talking about random techno music <laughs> on a theology podcast. Oh, I love it so much. So here's what I've been thinking about is we kind of have to have an obligatory Christmas episode, right? We do. We do. We're con- contractually obligated. Yeah. It's that's actually I... in the terms for our podcast host that we have to do one Christmas episode a year. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Our legal department has reminded us that we, we're definitely obligated to do this. That and is so false. I was just kind of thinking this week about how you and I are kind of processing Christmas, especially in light of just thinking about the incarnation. We've already spoken a lot kind of about the technical aspects but just kind of more in a pastoral way, like as we're getting ready to celebrate Christmas and this will air a little bit thereafter, how we think about the incarnation, what the incarnation means to us, especially this time of year. So I was kind of just thinking we could chat about that a little bit. How do you feel about that? Yeah. I mean, the incarnation is obviously like the central fact of our faith. So, you know, if you don't have, if you don't have the incarnation, you don't have Christianity. And for me, 
Um, this is going to sound like weird and mystical and it's not meant to be that way, but kind of the, the incarnation and understanding, I've said this before, understanding the hypostatic union really kind of unlocked Christianity for me. Before that, it was kind of this weird, you know, I believed what the Bible said, or at least I, I believed what I thought the Bible said and I trusted Jesus, but the, the facts of how salvation functioned just didn't really click for me. It didn't make sense. I mean, I could probably have repeated the basic arguments about like, well, Jesus had to be man because he had to die in our place and he right. had to be God because only God could take that that kind of punishment. But the the sort of on a practical level, I didn't know how to pray, right? I didn't understand what it meant for Christ to be my mediator. So for me, the incarnation and the technical elements of the incarnation really kind of drove me into a more practical piety. It drove me to a devotion to Christ as I understood the sort of more along the lines. Obviously, we can never get our heads around the totality of the incarnation. But as I started to get my head around the incarnation itself and the what was going on metaphysically, it really did drive me to praise, which is what good theology is supposed to do. I like that because one of the things I've been thinking about this year is that cultural Christmas is just for me this big reminder that our problem is so deep that morality is not the solution. It cannot solve the problem. We actually need a savior, somebody who can diagnose our condition and then provide some kind of remedial treatment of that condition. So, so much of what Christmas seems to be about, at least for the average person, is this kind of self-imposed religiosity or morality that obligates certain behavior in this time of year. But it's like building a house without laying a foundation. Like I, I really want to ask people, as we was kind of talking about before, like, well, where does the peace come from? Where does the generosity come from when you yeah. just kind of say, well, that's what we do? It's almost like Christmas time is going back to the Old Testament where there's, there's this attempt to legislate morality. And with Jesus, like the only way that we get beyond that is through some kind of real incarnation, God actually encasing himself in flesh and living in a way that was that Adam was meant to live in. And I, I don't, I don't know. I, I just think that I haven't really, really let that sink in kind of like what you're saying. It changes us when we really think about that in a practical way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't have the passage off the top of my head. I think it's in first John, but it, it says, you know, we will be changed when we see him as yeah. he is. And so the Christian theology talks about the beatific vision where we actually behold the face of God. And, and, you know, there's different perspectives on what that means. Some people will say that when we, you know, when we get to heaven or in the resurrection or however that parses out, that we'll actually be able to see God in his essence. Um, I, I don't think that makes any sense because in his essence, God is invisible. So right. if we're using the word see, we, we can't be meaning with our eyes. Um, but I actually tend to line up on the side of things that the only thing we'll ever see, all the only God we'll ever see is the incarnate God-man. So we'll know the Father and we'll experience the Spirit. We'll, we'll have an, a direct unmediated experience of the Father in this. Well, actually, I wouldn't even say unmediated because Christ, Christ always lives and is perpetually our mediator. So the Father and the Spirit are always mediated to us through the Son. And what I, where I'm going with that is... Um, you know, the, the Bible talks about how when we see Christ, we will be changed. We'll be transformed. That's part of our blessed hope, right? The beatific vision. In some senses, I think that good Christology serves a similar function on this side of death, 
right? We, we learn about who Jesus is, not just, you know, we don't just learn the facts of his life, but we learn about what he did for us, not just on the cross, but also in the manger. Right and on. that changes us. It transforms us. Maybe not ontologically, not metaphysically, the way that we expect the beatific vision will. Right. That's kind of how the, the way that glorification comes to us is we are glorified as we see Christ. But it does change us to know who who Christ is and what he did for us. I remember when I first really came to understand what you were saying about the beatific vision, because oftentimes we kind of speak casually, especially when we're speaking about heaven being in the presence of God or seeing God. But when I really started to understand, and this is, I think, the great benefit of reading a lot of John Owen, that the way that we will see with our eyes God is through and only through the face of Jesus Christ. Right. And there's a really marvelous and miraculous thing that God would send his son to, to identify, self-identify in some ways, with us in our humanity. That's the only way we're going to see, because in this life, we appropriate him by faith. But at some point, faith will be unnecessary because we will actually see him, but who will we see? It is Jesus Christ himself, right. who is that full representation of the Father. It, that starts in the manger, and that's yeah. a really awesome thing. Yeah, I mean, even in the garden, right, the Westminster Confession talks about how um, creatures owe God obedience, but even then, um, they could not gain any sort of salvific benefit. Salvation is not the right word, but the, any permanent benefit. They couldn't, their work could not, obligate God to reward them. Right. But God condescends to them. And, you know, different theologians approach it different ways, but I actually would say that the way that God condescends and the when God came to give the instructions to Adam and Eve, that it was the son condescending and and appearing to them and giving them in a mediated form. So even prior to the incarnation, even even creation itself is mediated through the son. So, you know, at Christmas time, we have to properly put Christ in his roles and functions. It's not enough to just put the baby in the manger and leave it at that, right? That's There's a special focus on that part of Christ's earthly life and ministry. But if Christ was just a baby in a manger and never you know, progressed to adulthood to do what he did, then Christmas is kind of empty and meaningless anyways. Right. This is where I love the specificity and the continuity of the scriptures because when Isaiah basically writes in Isaiah 9, 6, for to us, a child is born, a son is given. There we're seeing the eternality of right. Jesus Christ. And yet as well, this complementary piece of his humanity coming into existence in that sense. So it's like wonderfully consistent. This is why it's like so rich and so deep. And I, I think that in the end, if I think about the omnipresent word, and we should talk about this because you and I have kind of talked about this at other times. Sure. How interesting it is that the scriptures speak about Christ becoming the word and not just kind of in this colloquial sense, like the scriptures are the word of God. And so it makes sense that we'd say, use the same word for Jesus. We, I don't think God needed to use the same word to describe right. the enfleshment of his son, right? So like we should talk about why the use of word as representative of Jesus is so important. Yeah, well, and, and it's not as though Jesus became the Word, right? In the beginning was the Word. So John John's Gospel makes it clear that Christ is eternally the Word. And this is actually right. gets to one of the—I was listening to Reform Forum um, today while I was shoveling, and this was gets at one of the main issues in the early church, right? So in the book of Proverbs, we have this sort of personified wisdom, right? Wisdom is sort of portrayed as, a, as an— um, 
as an actual person. And Arius used that and pointed to the fact that Christ is the Logos, which is um, the same word we get our word logic from. So the rationality of the universe, the 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 speech and the the rhetoric of God is Christ. He pointed at wisdom in Proverbs, which is a creature, and said, "See, Christ is a creature." But the problem is, is if we talk about Christ as the log, the word of God, right, the speech of God, the logic of God, the wisdom of God, are we to suppose that somehow the Father was there was a point when the Father was without his wisdom? Right. Well, no. the The Father is always wise. The Father is wisdom Himself, and so out of the Father comes wisdom, and not not in a sense. You know, we talk about begottenness. We talk about eternal generation. Not in a sense of like an origin of cause. But the the son does is begotten of the father, and that's important for us to remember that that's not a feature of his incarnation. It's not as though the son became begotten right. when he uh, took on flesh; he was eternally begotten. And in some senses, the fact that he was begotten of the virgin helps us to understand and know that he is the one who was begotten of the father as opposed to the spirit who proceeds from the father. So that, I mean, I think that's important, but yeah, the idea that Christ is the word of God is not just that he's, he's God's wisdom. He's the father's wisdom, but he is God's speech to us. He's God's speech to creation. Um, you know, Calvin talks about, I think it's Calvin, but he talks about in his, in a commentary on Colossians, there's this sort of cosmic mediatorial nature of Christ. And that's, that's to say that even, even the angels have Christ as their mediator in a sense, in that they were created through Christ, through the son. And so the son has this special, um, special affinity with creation that makes it proper for him to be incarnate rather than the spirit becoming incarnate or the father becoming incarnate. It's not as though there's something about the father or the spirit that makes it so they couldn't become incarnate, right? Everything that the son is, the spirit and the father also are, except in their relations to each other. But there's something about the relation of the father to the son and the son to the spirit that makes the son the proper person to be incarnated into creation. And that's so important because it means that all other miracles are in service of that central miracle that God became man. Right. Which I love. So we have this baby Jesus. He's wrapped in swaddling clothes. He's lying in a manger, but he's also the omnipotent, omnipresent Lord of the universe in a sense. And so where my head goes after a while is just this appreciation that in the end, for the most part, the incarnation is not really for my analysis, but should be for my worship. And that's where I think it can drive us in this season to really fall on our knees in praise and in adoration. Because there's a lot of things in life where we can pick up some reading. You know, we can read an article about Bitcoin and then walk away from that article feeling like, well, we have some semblance of knowledge about that. This is one of those areas that we just keep plumbing the depths of the well. And most of the time I just go away in like just rapt worship for how amazing God is in his orchestration of all these details. Yeah. And that's the thing that I think when we think about the incarnation, it's one of the things that reminds me that God is big enough and he is only big enough that no matter how old we get, how smart we think we are, how educated we we become, that he is enough to continually fill us with wonder. And that's where I think there is legitimate wonder in this season as we kind of think about what it means that Jesus would be a child, would take on all of our flesh. Like that is something that is just so worth being long and thought about. Yeah, and I think, you know, we can sometimes 
because of the way a lot of Christmas hymns are written, um, and even some of the ways, I think some of the ways that scripture speaks about the incarnation, um, we can come to some wrong conclusions about the incarnation. So, you know, it's really, it's common to hear people talking about how like the son left heaven, he gave up heaven. And in a certain sense, that's true is that the, the son, um, the son took on flesh and, and took on a embodied localized existence, but that doesn't mean that the son was no longer in heaven or that the son no longer was omnipotent. So, you know, at the same time, there's a baby being born and is, you know, limited to a manger and couldn't get out of that manger even if he wanted to. Right. Um, but at the same time, that same person is upholding the universe with by the word of his power. Yes. And I think we have to we have to maintain that because if we if we take the incarnation and somehow make it about God becoming less than God, then we have lost the whole gospel, right? Amen. Because if we if we do that, then we've now taken our mediator and made him something that's less than sufficient for our need, right? Our mediator has to be God because only God can mediate with God. Right. Um, Moses goes before God on Mount Sinai, and he he serves as an image of Christ. That he stands sort of in the gap between an angry and vengeful God and the people who have offended him. And it's an act of grace that God accepts that mediation. But Moses himself was a sinful creature who should have fallen under the condemnation of a vengeful God. So ultimately, you know, the book of Hebrews talks about this, that the priests have to not only offer a sacrifice for the people, but they have to bring a sacrifice for their own sins. And Christ's sacrifice is better because he comes into God's presence without sin. So he he no longer has to offer his own sacrifice for his own sins. But he has to be God in order to serve as that mediator, right? That's that's central to our faith. And it's something that I think we really, because of our popular piety and our popular hymnody, we completely lose those features of, of Christology that are, are essential for us to hold on to. That's like some just Garden of Eden theology. Like that's all the way back to the beginning. Because right. when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, I think there's graciousness in how God handled that just by virtue of the fact that he said the repercussions of that would be death. So the fact that they have spiritual death and not physical death, I think is God showing his graciousness to them. He should have struck them down. He could have, that was well within the right. So that means for me, what we forfeited from the very beginning was the right to life itself. So the fact that God is going to essentially need, in a this is a weird thing to say, but God is going to need God to bring about that reconciliation. Like you said, nothing else will do. Everything is just types and shadows till we get to that point. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about that. I hear people speak all the time, especially about like uh, Philippians 2. What does it mean that God emptied himself? And I hear a lot of like, well, Jesus, he held in abeyance all of his deity. But I think really what Paul is driving at there is not that Jesus did not hold or maintain the fullness of his divinity, but that he did not exploit it or leverage it against his experiencing the fullness of humanity. And right. that is some serious condescension, which I think, again, should just drive us into doxology. Yeah, I like the way that you say that because so often, you know, I was actually having this discussion with someone the other day. We talk about things that, if we really stop and think about it, are totally incoherent, 
right? So we talk about Christ limiting his divine attributes. That what happens in the incarnation is God is is the Son somehow chooses not to exercise his omniscience. Right. Well, omniscience is not something that that the Son does. It's what the Son is. Right. So is or omnipresence is a better a better um, omnipotence even is a better example. Is what would it mean to limit omnipotence? It, it has just a completely meaningless sentence. Right. Right. If it's limited, it can't, by definition, cannot be omnipotent. And so we, we get into these logical contradictions because we're not actually thinking through what the, what the scriptures say. Right. In Philippians, it says he emptied himself, but then it says by taking on the form of a servant. So um, this is probably the one thing that you'll ever hear me positively cite William Lane Craig on. But William Lane Craig is crystal clear on this. I think it other this is the only thing I've ever run into in his Christology that's right, is he says that the incarnation is not subtraction, it's addition. Yes. And so the sun never ceases, and this is why it's so mind mind tweaking. And this was um this was the the game changer for me, is that um we think of Christ becoming human, we think of him particularly like he goes from being omnipresent, being everywhere in a particular way. He goes into being locally present. And we see that as a sort of shrinking of his presence, right? At one point, he was present in all places at all times. And then somehow he shrinks down and he's present at only one place at one time. And the reason we do that is because we don't think of locally present uh, we think of locally present and omnipresent as like parts of a continuum, right? There's there's omnipresent on one end of the continuum and there's locally present on the other. And so what happens in the incarnation is Christ moves from one place on the on the continuum to another. But instead, we need to think about local presence as an attribute. It's a feature. It's an ability that Christ takes on, right? So there's a certain set of capacities, that he has according to his divine nature. And then there's a certain set of capacities that he has according to his human nature and also limitations that he has according to his human nature. And so he adds to his omnipresence a local present. Right. This is, this is where it tweaks my brain is that the father and the son are not locally present. They are not in any location because they are omnipresent. And that doesn't simply mean that they exist at all locations, but they exist in a way that is beyond the concept of location. And that's important. And so we have that. And what Christ takes on is the ability to exist at a location, at a particular location and only that location. Um, and that, I mean, that's the incarnation. And that's that's the game changer. It is, is a game changer. If, if we ever think about if we ever think about divine attributes, even the communicable divine attributes, even the attributes that God analogically shares with us, if we ever think about those as though it was a continuum, that omniscience is just God knows more facts than I do, or omnipotence is God has quantitatively more power than I do, then we're going to get the incarnation wrong because we're going to see the incarnation as a movement on that continuum from one place to another instead of an entirely new continuum that's added to the first. I like where you're going with that because I've always thought that what we see in the wonder of the God-man is a miraculous extension and not a reduction. So using language like limit is really troublesome. I just had to look this up because this is so good. Let me quote something really quickly from Calvin from the Institutes. This is what he says about that. 
Here is something marvelous. The Son of God descended from heaven in such a way that, without leaving heaven, he willed to be born in the virgin's womb, to go about the earth and to hang upon the cross. Yet he continuously filled the world, even as he had done from the beginning. Yeah, that's great. Boom. That, that's what's awesome. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about that kind of thing. So I think this is not like an exit from heaven so much as it is a descent, an extension. And right. I've said this before, but I love this picture that Joe puts together where in his immense suffering, which is of all kinds of, of kinds, basically, you know, physical and emotional, he asks at one point, is there somebody, this is my paraphrase, this is the Jesse translation, is there somebody <laughs> who can put their arm, as it were, around my shoulder and around God's shoulder yeah. that can bridge this gap, that can either help express my pain and suffering in a way that was was deep and real and understandable? And is there somebody that can make amends because I feel as though I'm out of sorts with my creator? And of course, Jesus is that God man. And so it's just wonderful to live on this side of the cross and to be able to celebrate that year round whenever, but to be able to firmly plant our theology and our faith in that kind of gap filler, that kind of head crusher. That's what I just love about this time of year. Just gives us an excuse to really lean into that in a particular way. Yeah. And and you know, one of the best books I've ever read, um, and I usually try to read it every year during Advent, but I had too much on my reading list this year is um, On the Incarnation by Athanasius. And, you know, when you read it, if you've read other Christology books, you read it and you're like, this doesn't seem so great. Like, it, it's so basic. It's so elementary, the stuff that he's talking about. But then you step back and you realize that the reason it's so elementary is because it literally was the beginning of this kind of thinking. So it's elementary because it is actually elementary in the in the in the, time. In, in the like definition of the sense is that this is an elemental part of our theology. Right. And the reason it sounds so basic is because everybody in the history of Christian theology is building off of it. And what I love about that about that book is that he uses language in a way that helps us to understand the incarnation. So he talks about um and, and he ties it to to salvation in, in some pretty amazing ways. And he talks about how like if you had a king who was coming to a city, um, that city, even if it's not a reputable city, that city doesn't bring disrepute to the king. Instead, the king's presence in that city elevates the status of that city. Right. And that's what the incarnation, even if you even if you were to somehow abstract it from the cross, even the fact that Christ took on our flesh has impact for all of humanity. Now, for those who refuse to trust in Christ, it's not a good thing because it it furthers their condemnation. But for those of us who are in Christ and who trust Christ, our our very nature is made into something that it was not previously. Now we right. can be we can go down that path in an unhealthy way and the Eastern Orthodox tradition has taken that that insight and has blown it, has put it on like steroids such that just as Christ takes on our humanity, we actually sort of in a metaphysical sense take on Christ's divinity. Um, and Athanasius does say he became man so that man might become God, but he's he's talking about it in relational terms. We don't have to get into that. But if you ever are looking for something to read that will just make your mind do somersaults, 
um, on the incarnation is an amazing work. Um, and then follow it up with, uh, he wrote a series of letters to his successor, Didymus the blind on the Holy spirit. And he takes all of the logic that he applied in the incarnation to defend the deity of Christ. And he does that with the Holy spirit. So Athanasius is probably one of my all time heroes of the faith. And there's a good chance that Athanasius actually knew the real St. Nicholas. Oh, so, there you go. That just went full circle. Put that in your in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> I, did, I didn't really expect that kind of strong language at the end there. <laughs> it seemed like unnecessarily aggressive, but that <laughs> that heads everything off. I'm glad you brought up the thing about relational stuff, though, because one of the big misunderstandings at this time of year is all this talk about peace, peacefulness, peace on earth. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I get so often misquoted. And one, I think the wonderful outworkings of the incarnation is real peace. So if we go to, I think this is Luke, what chapter is this? Luke 2, where we find that that very famous set of words. So, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is well pleased. So I, I've been kind of thinking of that through that and noticing this necessary antecedent to the peace. Where does the peace come from? It's not for all men. It's those with whom he is pleased. In the same way, when angel Gabriel goes to Mary and he calls her blessed, here is one whom God is pleased with. So it's this idea that the peace of Christmas time, so to speak, the peace of the incarnation is the best kind of peace. And that peace, peace is theocentric. It's we are no longer at enmity with God. We are no longer enemies by way of the incarnation in Jesus Christ. And that's so much better. I'm, I'm not like a huge Thomas Merton fan, but he has one quote that I've always remembered that I really like. And he wrote somewhere, we're not at peace with others because we're not at peace with ourselves. And we're not at peace with ourselves because we're not at peace with God. And yeah. the incarnation allows for that kind of peace that we're no longer warring with God himself. But like you said, for those who trust and believe in him, there is that kind of blessed assurance. But for those that do not, it's just more condemnation. Yeah. And, and the, the thing about that passage that's so beautiful is, you know, the, the old translation, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to men. Um, you know, that, that translation that kind of like eliminates the idea that it's only the people who he's pleased with. That, that goodwill, peace on earth and goodwill to men. It takes that phrase goodwill, which is what gets translated as pleased, and it makes it something that God is giving, giving to all men. Exactly. And, you know, in a certain level, yes, that's true. There's common grace that comes to all men, right? All, all humans, all persons. That, that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. I can enjoy a nice uh, bottle of beer the same as a non-Christian can. I can I can participate in the beauty of God's creation the same as a non-Christian can. But when you actually look at the Greek, the the phrase uh, eudokias, which is um, is pleased or um, sort of like favor, the favor rest, that actually is an adjective that describes the men. Right. So exactly. it's not. It might even be more accurate to say, um, you know, the, the English tries to sort of like make it sound like good English, but it's more like peace among the pleased of God men. Right. The, the men who who um, who are favored of God, 
favorite of God men. So it's, it's much more fundamental to the actual identity of the people who peace is to. And that's, that's something that we have to remember too, because even in this, right, you can read this in an Arminian sense, which is sort of the other way that like God extends goodwill to all men. And it's just a matter of the, the men who accept that goodwill or the Greek supports sort of the more Calvinist perspective that it's not all men that the peace is extended to. The peace is on earth for the men whom God is pleased with. Right. And that's a that's a recurring theme throughout the gospel. And if you study the Greek, that's actually a really common feature. Like John 3.16, right? It's not really God so loved the world, world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever. It's actually more like God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that the believing ones may not perish but have eternal life. The way that the Greek is is believing ones is a participle. So we have to understand and we have to, you know, this is kind of a side topic, but finding a good translation, not everybody is going to study Greek and that's just fine. I wish everybody could study Greek, but that's not realistic. But finding a good, reliable translation is so important because you are either faced with an accurate, faithful translation of God's word or you have something else. Right. You have the words of men. Now, all translations have their weaknesses and their, their issues. Um, translating from one language to another is difficult. Sometimes there's not a good way to translate a concept. So you have to sort of pile on words to try to get at it. But finding a good translation is really important. I, I love the ESV, um, the HCSB or the, or the CSB, I suppose it's called now, is a good translation. Um, NASB, those are all good kind of reliable basically literal translations. Although the CSB I was reading in um, Psalm 1 the other day, they do some really weird stuff with it. So maybe just stick with the ESV. <laughs> I'm all over the place. <laughs> that, that went around too. Yeah, I think you're right on about that because there's a difference between just speaking about common grace and the peace, which is essential to that text. And I think right. it makes more sense. It coheres better and informs what Jesus says elsewhere when he says in John 14, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives it, do I give it to you. Let not your hearts yeah. be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So this idea that somehow the announcement of the angels is, is particularly about horizontal peace really cheapens that whole text as if this, yeah. the reason is like, well, we're not going to war anymore and people are not going to fight and nations are going to settle down with one another. No, the whole problem is the reason why we war with one another is because we have no peace with God. That is where right. it must start. So here is the son of God who is going to bring peace to those for whom God has favor on. And like you said, that is so critical. And, and what it should do is, a, is far from make us feel like, well, we need to do something in response or this is given to all people equally. We should once again, just fall down on our knees and worship and with grateful hearts say, thank you, God that you yeah. have favor on me. In the same way, basically we should take our example from Mary. And that that's basically the magnificent. Like who God that you would have, you would show your favor on me is remarkable. Yeah. And I think that's the kind of thing that we should be thinking about when we think about the incarnation. That this is like a real sense of being brought into true relationship with God because we naturally want to war against him. And even as Christians, we still want to war against him. And so the fact that this piece is like continual, it, it paves a way for us to not be enemies anymore is like just an amazing thing to me. It That is just, aside from like all what we just talked about in terms of omnipotence and omnipresence, that will make your mind do a somersault. 
And this, in another way, makes my mind do a somersault. There's a lot of somersaulting going on. I'm telling you what, this subject is just, it's mind boggling to me. Like I, I just want to let this kind of where I, what I feel like right now is Christmas jump starts for me every year. This kind of appreciation, I just want to make sure I can carry it through into the new year, so to speak, that I don't just make it yeah. kind of what's in vogue right now and then move beyond that. Because, I mean, we could we could speak about, like we've already talked about before, just what it means that Jesus is prophet, priest, priest and king, that he's this ultimate fulfillment. I don't know. I think the scriptures are just so replete with how amazing Jesus is. Like maybe our response as Christians should just be like, Jesus, you're amazing. Like just... yeah. All the time. You're amazing. Like, I know that sounds like a child, but in some ways, maybe that's exactly where our hearts should be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we are on one of those subjects that we, we could and we will talk about this for eternity. Right. But not on this show. We're going to come to an end at some point. <laughs> that, was, that was good. But, you know, I I remember, I don't remember all the specifics. I remember where I was, though. I was driving in uh, the next town over, which is called Lebanon. I was driving up this hill and I was listening to Reform Forum and Lane Tipton uh, was talking about how the the fact that God is infinite and our minds are finite, that's that's sort of an intimidating thing this side of eternity. But what's really glorious about it is that we will always and forever be learning more and more and more about our God. Right. We can never exhaust the knowledge of God, because there's no such thing as exhausting the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God is as infinite as God is. And so our, our knowledge reaches a limit. What that limit may be in eternity, who knows? Maybe there won't be a limit. Or obviously, we don't become infinite, but maybe our learning kind of increases as we go. But the incarnation is a subject that we cannot exhaust. So if you feel like you've got your head completely around the incarnation, you don't. And if you feel like you've listened and read everything you ever need to about the incarnation, you haven't. Get out of here. So just take this season, right? Christmas on the liturgical calendar, not that we endorse the liturgical calendar, but on the liturgical calendar, Christmas is not a day. Christmas is a season and it starts on December 25th. Right. So without turning it into a holy day or a holy season, take this time and maybe for the next month or so, focus on the incarnation a little bit. Maybe pick up Knowing Christ by Mark Jones or pick up on the incarnation by Athanasius, which is free online if you can find it, um, and just do some reading. I mean, it's such a deep subject and it's so important for our faith. But unfortunately, I've run into so many people online that just don't, they don't understand it and they don't even try to understand it. Right. They've picked up these weird, simplistic ways of talking about the incarnation and they just repeat those things over and over again without realizing that most of the time what they're saying is just rank heresy. And it's it's really sad because there's so much beauty and depth in the theology of the incarnation. And that really does drive us to not only to praise, to doxology, but to practical outflows of discipleship too, right? We can follow Christ because Christ was one of us, but he's worth following because he's God. Exactly. So it's it's, I can't say enough about how much we need to study this, how much we need to keep focusing on it and talking about it and thinking about it and studying and writing and all of the things we do as Christians. Um, it's so important. And that brings me back to the emptiness of cultural Christmas time, because yeah. I, I talk with a lot of like adults, even casually, like older folks. And I think this time of year, there is this sensibility somewhere inside of us that wants to be filled with wonder 
And a lot of adults will say once their children are old and grown and moved away, that Christmas holds no special place anymore because they don't get to see the wonder of their children. It's lost all of its luster. And the reason for that is because only God is big enough that he can fill us with wonder and awe, no matter how old we get or how much we grow in our intellect or our study. That's the way it was meant to be. So we're, there's this vacuum that's self-imposed in some ways, and we need to do something about that. Even as Christians, like you said, we have a lot of ignorance when it comes to the incarnation. And one of the things that's been so helpful for me is picking up books like the one that you talked about by Athanasius and Mark Jones, Knowing Christ, because sometimes these, these men, these women who are writing, they are able to alert me to things that I would have never even thought about on my own, and that's yeah. okay. But we should really try to invest ourselves into that. This is one of those things, those subjects, that I I can say with absolute surety, whatever you put into trying to understand, you're going to get way more out of. The return on this is so great. And it's not that you're going to have a better conceptual sense or maybe even intellectual command, but your spirit will be greatly strengthened and empowered and your Christian walk will be that much more dedicated. I mean, that I can promise. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Did I oversell that? No, I don't think you can oversell it. <laughs> yeah, it's I not don't possible. Think you can. So I thought it would be fun since we're talking about the vacuousness of Christless Christmas. Good word. Before we go, what is your all-time worst Christmas song? Oh, okay. Are you ready for that? This is like a lot of people use this one. I am going to go with Mary. Did you know? Only because oh, the answer okay. is. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, it's huh. it's not that. So this could go lots of different ways because I'm presuming like that's probably uncharacteristic for a, a Christian in the sense that there's a lot of like awful Christmas songs out there. Right. But I just not a fan of that one because I want to be like the whole, I know maybe the whole premise is it's rhetorical and we're just trying to speak about the different kind of facets of the relationship between Mary and Christ. But yeah. I don't know. It's just weird. It is weird. And the answer is, yeah. So I kind of want to be like, we don't even need to sing it. It's beautiful melody for sure. But I, I can just stop you right there. Mary, did you know? Yes. How about oh, you? See, ev- everything you said about that song, I would say the opposite. <laughs> Other than the fact that I also don't like the song. But my all-time least favorite Christmas song is Last Christmas by i think it's by wham yeah yeah so i saw this hilarious meme on the internet where you, where all where memes all are memes are <laughs> and it was a picture you do you remember from indiana jones and the temple of doom yes there's that scene where the yes. like the witch doctor rips out the guy's heart yeah and he, it had a picture and it said last christmas i gave you my heart and then the caption said you screamed kalima and it burst into flames <laughs> And that's what I want that song to do is burst into flames. It's the stupidest, dumbest, point, most pointless song. And for me, it absolutely represents the meaningless of Christmas without Christ. Amen. So, you know, this time of year, we've said it now two or three times on different episodes. This time of year, and by the time you're listening to this, it's not this time of year anymore, I guess. But during Christmas, the culture around us is absolutely ready to hear about Jesus, right? I met my wife uh, for lunch the other day at the hospital next to a manger scene at at a, a liberal secular hospital. And that's unheard of, right? There's no other time of year that that would be okay. Right. So it's it's 
a situation that we're in, it's a time of year we're in, even for a little while after Christmas, the culture has sort of like this Christmas hangover. So don't waste this, don't waste this season. Um, engage your theological um, studies to study the incarnation. Engage your practical piety to really venerate and worship God and Christ alone. And engage apologetics, engage evangelism to use what you're studying and learning to share that with those around you. That's well said. Can I suggest Thanks. one more awful song? <laughs> sure. <laughs> now, now that you closed it out in like a really beautiful, uplifting and encouraging way, can I just take it back down? Um, yeah, let's let's take it down. W- one more song real quick, because now I feel like you, you juked me there and that was like a really great example. And mine was basically <laughs> just like, I'm annoyed with this song, so that's what I'm going to use. But here's one that's absolutely awful, especially in light of our current environment where we've seen all this exposure of really bad behavior in genders. Let's talk about real quick. Baby, it's cold outside. Oh my goodness! Is that not a horrible? We talked about song? this a couple of years ago. Did we? <sighs> I think so. It's it's bad. So it's this is bad, bad for, in my opinion, for two reasons, and this is not in any particular order. The first one is how is this even a Christmas song? So when it's Christmas not. is over, you never hear this. Yet the winter continues. It's still cold outside. You could still it sing is this still song. Cold outside. There, there's no like you could nothing explicitly like Christmas about this. The second thing is I'm pretty sure this should be a song for like how to like instructions for how to prevent getting a roof in your drink. <laughs> and I'm trying to yeah. be diplomatic about this. Yeah, it's bad. It's there's so, really nothing. So bad. There's nothing good about it. And I can't tell if there's like some kind of like affair or adultery going on here. Like the third verse is the neighbors might think say what's in this drink. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's, it's bad. I think, um, yeah, I don't know. I've read people try to like defend it as like a, it has to do with like the era and it's not really like, she's not really asking what's in this drink. It's like a playful kind of, but no, it's just, it's just weird. Maybe it was, maybe it worked in when it was written and maybe it was playful and flirty, but now it just is creepy. Well, wait, when was it just written? creepy? I don't know. I mean, I feel like it was probably like the sixties or fifties, maybe. What was going on then? I don't know. I don't know. That that's weird. So yeah, I thanks for letting me end it on that note. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where we go from here. How about this? If you would like to get in on this conversation, sorry, that's like the general you, not you, Tony. You've already been in this conversation. If you would like to get in on this conversation, especially because we're heading into a new year, we want to get a little voicemail action on the show. Why don't you lend us your voice by calling and leaving a voicemail at 607-444-2767. That would be great. And we have other ways to contact us. You can check out the website, reformbrotherhood.com. All of the contact information is there. Um, but really we would love it if you'd send us some voicemails. We have said it again and again. We promise we are working on it. We want to get these on the air. I am just not up to the task at this point, and I need a second brain. So Jesse will be here tomorrow. Um, Tomorrow's Christmas Eve. The next day is Christmas, so I doubt we're going to be getting any work on it then. But uh, we're going to put our heads together and figure this out. We're going to get it up. It's going to be great. So please call us. Make that your New Year's resolution to call the Reformed Brotherhood. Excellent. All right, Jesse, take us out. All right, Tony. Well, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood.